Leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Welcome to Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath, where experienced leaders share their own brand of leadership to help you develop and improve your own leadership capabilities. And now, here's your host, Dr. Gary. Hi, I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Welcome again to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Our guest today is the Chief Executive Officer of FTD, the Modern Florist Collective, where he oversees all people and operations, and he brings extensive digital and retail leadership experience to this 110-year-old brand, which he joined in March of last year. Before joining FTD, he served as the first global chief e-commerce officer for Samsonite while simultaneously serving as chief digital officer for Toomey. Earlier in his career, he held executive positions and led digital transformations at Assembled Brands, Shift Nutrition, and Lucky Brand Jeans. Earning a bachelor's degree in business administration from the University of Washington, please welcome Charlie Cole. Hey, Charlie. Hey, Gary. Happy Martin Luther King Day, as it were. Well, as it happens to be. That's right. So, Charlie, talk a little bit about your path to becoming CEO of multiple companies and the first global chief e-commerce officer of Samsonite. That sounds like it'd be a kind of a cool position, but talk to us a little bit about the background, how you got there. I was one of those fortunate ones that happened to have my natural skill set intersect with a macro theme. And in my case, it was a background in mathematics and statistics happening at the same time as really direct consumer e-commerce. And it just so happened that was a perfect marriage. You know, I, I always think about Malcolm Gladwell in his book, Outliers, ostensibly writes 300 plus pages that can be condensed down to a one-liner. And the one-liner is, you can be really smart, but you also, it pays to be lucky. I was very fortunate to be statistics math. And then my first job out of college was doing an advertising and an analyst job. And that threw me into the world of Google search. And it just kind of grew from there. And so I think for me, the pathway to e-commerce came by way of digital marketing, which came by way of my formal education. And I'll say, Gary, a a lot of folks don't get so lucky. So it ended up being a linear story, but it was really just based on latency more than anything. Well, you know, it's interesting. My doctor is in business administration and marketing. And I tell people this all the time, 80 to 90% of marketing is doing your research. It's doing the statistical analysis, understanding the market, what the trends are, what's going on. So in the work that you were doing, especially in the digital world, it seems like a great fit for that. Like you said, your natural tendencies towards math and statistics, and then getting into digital marketing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and I would add one thing to that. I agree with your 80 to 90% part. The thing that I've learned throughout my career is that the perfect marriage of marketing is someone with a background like myself, which is, I would say, the iterative part, and then finding the absolute best creative partners on earth to do the generative part. And that was something that I learned throughout my entire career. And if you get that kind of yin and yang, that's the perfect marketer. Now, I would tell you, I'm not sure that individual exists, but as like a coalesced unit, being able to complement my natural skill set with the thing that I'm terrible at, right? I mean, if you ask me to draw a picture, I'm actually colorblind. So you don't <laughs> want me doing a lot of the generative part. But I, I think for me, that was the piece that coming out of college, I wasn't armed with. 
And, and I would say that I had to learn through osmosis that that was my blind spot, if you pardon the pun. That's where I think the funnest part of making a high-performance marketing team is designing that marriage in a way that there's a ton of mutual respect and yet very high-performing functional expertise on the other side. So let's look at this from a leadership standpoint quite often. Individual standpoint, we all have our strengths and limitations, right? And when you look at your strengths, at what point in, in your age or in your progression, your transformation, did you realize that these are my strengths and I don't know if you knew at the time whether you were colorblind. I mean, I didn't find out till I was 35 that I had a, I had a reading disability. And I found out because my son found it out and it sounded normal to me. You know? yeah. But when did it hit you? When did, it, when did you realize that that creative side from the marketing just wasn't you? Well, let me tell the, the colorblind story isn't the answer to your question, but I'm going to tell it anyways because it's a funny story. Okay. Uh, I was in Cub Scouts and I graduated to the wolf. Like, you know, it's all these various pathways and I was becoming a wolf and my mom was our den leader and you got a little plaster wolf and you got to paint it. And that was like the celebration. And I'm painting my wolf and my mom comes over my shoulders like, wow, Charlie, that's a very interesting color. And I kind of looked back. And I was like, what? It was gray. It was seafoam green. So that's how I found out I was colorblind is, is I was painting my wolf seafoam green. On my side, I think it was less about self-awareness that became like, so I always knew I wasn't artistically gifted. I always knew I wasn't a great generative creative but it was complementing that self-awareness with understanding the power that could be unlocked, right? And for me, that power that could be unlocked moment, I was 27. And the reason I know it to that number is because it was the first time I had great mentorship. Mm. I had a, a boss named Tarang Amin. I still talk to him to this day. He was actually a reference for me for the FTD job. He's now the CEO of ELF Cosmetics. He was the CEO of Shift Nutrition at the time. And Tarang really taught me the power that could be unlocked with that aforementioned marriage. Before then, Gary, if, if I'm being brutally honest, I sort of dismissed the creative arts as a creative. I was just like, well, look, I'll, I'll just outmath the next guy. I'll outanalyze the next guy. I, you know, that's going to be the key. You know, it doesn't matter what the creative is because I can just iterate and test and iterate and test. And it, it's frankly wrong. It's not the way I should have been thinking, but I was just naive. It, it wasn't because of, it was probably a combination of a little bit of arrogance, but majority wise naivete but Tarang taught me the, if you pardon the idiom, the, the one plus one equals three of the generative creative and the iterative creative. And, and before that, I didn't really appreciate it. And again, I, I attribute that mostly just because of naivety, but that was definitely the timing. And for me, I would also say that probably the biggest pivot point of my development as a leader is just kind of understanding how powerful that team can be as opposed to being kind of siloing myself in a world of analytics and mathematics. Yeah, and I, I think there's a point in a lot of our lives where we realize that some of the things that we're either not good at and we may diminish or we may not like to do, and we realize that there's other people that love to do that stuff. Yeah, and I think you end up in this line of thinking, it's really the number one argument, and this might seem like a non sequitur, but I, I promise I'll, I'll bring it back to the point. It's really the number one argument and, and why diversity is such a powerful thing in the workplace. Because the word diversity immediately starts to make you think about race, religion, sex, whatever it may be. But the key to a really great team is that diversity of thought, Gary, like we were just talking about, right? And it just so happens that diversity of thought is aided by different upbringings. So I, I said before, like, I played sports my whole life. I then was in math and analysis and I was in college. And then, you know, I was always around people like me, right? Like other athletes, other mathematicians, other analysts. And then when you get thrown into 
an area of like fashion, which is creatively dominated and creatively driven, you're a little bit like a fish out of water. And that is where you kind of have to either learn and evolve or you become just kind of stuck in your ways. And, and I think tragically, a lot of people do frankly just remain in their own head and, and remain stuck in their ways. But the best way to battle your way out of something like that, surround yourself with people that aren't like you, right? And, and surround yourself with the, this idea of diverse backgrounds, diverse educations, diverse nationalities, whatever it may be, because I truly believe, and this isn't just like a, a bumper sticker, I truly believe that's what makes the best teams. And, and I think that if you think about diversity in that way, it makes it that much easier and more exciting to pursue as opposed to like the traditional definitions of diversity, which can be frankly somewhat superficial. Yeah, I agree. And I, I, what a great day on Martin Luther King Day to be talking about this in one way. But to expand on that, my good friend, Dr. Rupert Nacost of NC State talks about this, just like what you said of diversity of thought, diversity of perspective, a diversity of, of skills, a diversity of strengths and limitations, as well as language and background and ethnicity and experiences. When we have people with skill, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this is an important part of it, in leadership, when people get to the point where they are clear about who they are, what they are, and how they want to live, and we have them write a personal mission statement to do that. All of my executive leadership and coaching starts with that. So you get grounded in who you are. You become less threatened by the ideas of others. Mm, I like that. Yeah. You're more open. You see, because I know who I am. You have a different perspective now. And it's like, okay, that doesn't, that doesn't affect who I am or the person that I am or what I stand for, my values. Even if you have different values, I can accept that. I can ex- openly listen and hear what you have to say without trying to defend who I think I am. Yeah. There's this underlying confidence that comes with being comfortable with your strengths and weaknesses. And I think that second part is the part that escapes people sometimes, right? Which is you don't want to be vulnerable about what you suck at. You know what I mean? And, And it's funny. It makes me think, and I played basketball growing up and I think every kid when they're on the playground for the first time, you want to just, you know, jack up threes or dunk. Like that's all you want to do as a basketball player when you're a kid. And what I realized that I was particularly good at in basketball was defense and rebounding. Right. And so my coach was funny. My, my coach, uh, his name is Chuck Lee. And, and, and Chuck said to me, like, you know, if you just stick at doing that, you're going to add so much more value to the team. He's like, and as a matter of fact, and he, and he said this in the, the nicest way a coach could. And I'm laughing because there's nothing nice about what I'm about to say. But coach, he goes, you know, what you should do is you should probably just stop dribbling. And I, <laughs> and that's a hard thing for like a high school kid to hear, you know, because you're growing up and you've always been good. And you've been scoring points and all that sort of stuff. But he was right. Right. And, and, and I think that that team attitude, you look at the best teams, right? You think about staying with basketball analogy, the Golden State Warriors, right? Like, no one is going to go and ask like Kevin Looney to score 30 points a game, but the dude gets offensive rebounds and sets picks like you wouldn't believe. And and I think that that is true in in leadership as well in business, which is having folks playing to their strengths, being equally aware of what they're not asked to do. And I think that that's certainly analogous in in sports as it is in leadership. So you were the Dennis Rodman of your high school basketball team. Yeah. yeah. The Chicago Bulls. That was, you probably don't have the ears and the nose. Well, no, I, I definitely didn't have the height, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, that, that's but yeah, that's, I would take that after comparison limited only to the basketball court. But it's truly a great thing for leaders to consider. One of the things in my leadership development with all the, the startups that I was part of, the technology companies, all the way down to Procter & Gamble when I worked for them, I was always able to find people on the team 
that would fit in with certain strengths that were needed. And I think that, I don't know about you, but in 30 years of business, there were only about four or five people I ever fired. I had the authority to fire a lot of people, but I didn't have to because you could find their strengths and move them into a position or help them realize that they weren't part of the culture. They would choose to go on their own, right? From folks that I've like kind of hired and, and built out, I've actually never laid off someone that I personally hired. I, I've had to go through unfortunate things where I inherited a team and a turnaround or whatever it may be. But the other thing, the other story that this makes me think of, Gary, is one of the most perplexing management moments I had in my entire career. And again, it was just because I was young. I was giving a guy his annual review. And this guy just crushed it in every sense of the word. And I was basically giving him the most glowing review you can ever imagine. And then I got to the end, I think I was 25, right? So I was very young. And I asked him, I was like, so what do you want to do next? Like, where do you want to grow? Like, how do you want to evolve? And he's like, oh, I don't really want to evolve. He's like, I love my job. He's like, I I don't need a bunch of management or director level stuff. He's like, I just want to keep on cranking and be a great contributor. My snap reaction at the time, again, 25, was like, what the hell kind of answer is that? Like, you know, I was just like, I couldn't comprehend that because it was so anathema to myself. But mm-hmm. I've learned that archetype, that person is so freaking important, right? That it's totally okay to want to be an individual contributor and do great work and not become a manager or, or as we would kind of limitedly broad scope, say leader, right? And, and that's important learning. And it goes back to exactly what you were saying before, which is, not everybody's wired the same. His desires are not the same as mine. And that's okay. It's not only okay, it's something you should value and seek out and support. And, and that was another one of those moments where I was just like, five years later, I'm like, oh man, like you should encourage that as opposed to see it as a weakness. Well, encourage it in those people that want it. I, it's funny you should say this. I had exactly the same thing happen to me when I was the director of safety, security, and the medical department at Scott Paper Company back in the 80s. It was a 2,500 person manufacturing plant. And I remember Art. Art used to work for me, Art Durier, and he was about 53 years old. And he said, I am in charge of the security force and I am in charge of the fire prevention systems in the plant. This is what I want to do. I love doing this. I don't want to do anything else. And I remember thinking, this is awesome because this is one less thing I have to worry about. He's been doing it for 10 years. He's perfect at it. He's on top of it. We had our monthly meetings. We made sure his goals were set. And he just did an awesome job. What else could you ask for as a leader who has all of these responsibilities? I mean, as the CEO of FTD, if you've got an operations person that just, for example, that just nails it every day. They're a COO or something. They've got it nailed. So you can go work on marketing or you can go work on sales or you can go work on partnerships or legal things that have to be taken, whatever it might be, where the struggles and challenges are. And that part of your business is taken care of. You can sleep at night. Yeah. I mean, it's the dream team, right? I mean, the way I like to structure our team and teams in general, I think we'll say is basically functional leaders, that reported to me. And so I remember, I remember telling one of our, my now colleagues, it was when I was very new at FTD. He's like, well, you know, how do we like, what about the strategy department? I kind of went like, I'm pretty sure that's my job. Like, 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 I don't need, and the other thing I like to say internally is there's only one generalist at this company and that's me. Right. I mean, cause we have a head of finance, a head of legal and HR, a head of Operations, right? Like the whole idea here is to empower people to be really, really great. And then the best teams 
and it goes back to what we were talking about before about this idea of kind of knowing your strengths and weaknesses, the best teams start to function cross-functionally out of this basis of self-awareness and strengths and weaknesses, right? So if I'm a digital marketer and I'm highly analytical, I should know that I'm only as good as my on-site merchandising and my creative, right? I should know that because I'm a marketer. That doesn't mean that I can do it all myself. And that's where we, I think, are starting to grow as a team. You know, we've been together for about nine months now. And so that's been the longest waltz, right? Is like getting people to bump into each other a little bit and then really start to kind of see the accretive nature of great cross and functional teams. But it all starts with exactly what you just said. Everybody loving and focusing on what they do. And then the cross-functional bit, I think, is where the interpersonal skills and just relationships just start to take hold over time. Yeah. So this whole idea of strengths and limitations, I call it not necessarily strengths and weaknesses, call it what you want. It's just words, but we all understand what we mean by that. You had mentioned earlier and very powerfully that the challenge with the weaknesses for many of us is being able to admit that we have the weaknesses and being vulnerable enough to make that admission. And there's a lot of work that we do on building trust. You've got to have trust on your team in order to be able to do it. Well, trust is the ability to achieve good things in all of those functional areas that you talked about, legal, finance, HR, operations, uh, sales and marketing, all of those things. They have to, on the executive team, the cost of entry is to be great at those things. The next part of it is for the team to meld together and being able to admit what they're bad at. And that's that level of vulnerability that the team needs to admit individually and say, look, I suck at this. So can uh, somebody else, you know, when I make a mistake here, if I do that, or can you have my back? You know, I, the work that I always do with organizations, IGYB, I've got your back. I've got your back leadership. Where did I get that? I got it from the military. All right. And I may have mentioned to you, my family, my four brothers, myself, my father, my son have 108 years of military service. Unbelievable. So you have an IGYB upbringing and a culture and the most important thing is not just being able to fulfill the mission yourself as an individual, but to have your back of everybody else. Because in the military, if you don't have your fellow soldiers back or your sailors back, somebody's going to die. Well, that's what can happen in a company. I think we had to do this in two different waves, right? The first wave. So I start March 23rd. FTD went bankrupt in August of 2019, right? So that's why I'm here is it was bought by private equity. And so the first kind of wave of this was, I'm going to call it the people that were at FTD before me, whether it was six months ago or whether they've been there for 30 years, there needs to be some serious soul searching and conversation about where did we go wrong? Because look, you can't deny you didn't go wrong. You were bankrupt, August 2019. So the first step, and you talked before about kind of like, if you ever had to fire people, if people weren't willing to look it back in a retrospective way and identify areas of opportunity that caused the company to go upside down, I'll say it very bluntly. I didn't have time for them, right? It's just like, if we were not, because that to me is a huge red flag, right? If you're not even willing to admit the culpability of a completely explicit failure, right? I mean, and so that was like this first step and it sounds totally negative and totally Machiavellian. It's not like that. It's about the accountability and it's about the self-awareness. That was wave one. But wait, hold on a second. But right there, it's not, it, it is reality. It's perspective around reality. And it's an admission that we made mistakes or things went wrong or we didn't do the right planning or whatever it is. Whatever the thing is, I, to your point, I don't see it as negative at all, Charlie. I see it as Jim Collins talks about in Good to Great is looking at the brutal facts. Yeah. If you're not willing to look at the brutal facts, then you're living a fantasy. 
I think we have like uh, I hate to use another sports analogy, but there's this concept like, of like a glue guy. Like Dennis Rodman was kind of a glue guy, like a guy that would hold a team together because he did all the dirty work. I think our glue guy is a, is a guy named Tom Muller. Tom has been with FTD for 10 years, right? So he was a part of success. He was a part of the bankruptcy, but he'd been at the company for 10 years. He was the loudest kind of megaphone in the company about evolution. And he was never afraid to look at the past, even his own individual kind of past in his own department. And to your point, look at it with as unbiased an eye as possible. And look, the word unbiased is literally impossible if you've been at a company for 10 years. I get that. But Tom embraced kind of the future as well as keeping an eye on the past so we don't repeat the same mistakes. And, and, and that kind of level of transparency, and in his case, since you have like 10 years of gravitas behind his voice in the company, he was probably one of the most important people to this cultural evolution because that is the second wave. This is my first job as a CEO where I inherited an quote-unquote old culture and started a quote-unquote new culture. In the past, I've been a CEO like a startup, right? So it's all generative. It's all new. It's all future. But this was the first time I've had to meld together. And the thing that I learned the most is that guys like Tom, Amy is on our team. Amy runs a customer experience team. These were folks that had been there, could look at the past, learn from it, and then drive forward. And I would say that they were as important, if not more important, than all the key new hires that we've made. We've hired a CTO, a COO, a CMO, you know, all of them. But I think those glue guys, the glue part of our culture are the folks that were here before and had that critical and self-aware eye to help us, A, move forward, but B, learn from the past. And, and I just think that that's been such cool osmosis to watch is just these folks that evolve and kind of dust themselves off and get up and start kicking some ass again. And I think that's really what, what we've been able to do because of the enablement, not only of the new awesome people we've hired, but the people that were still here and, and willing to kind of embrace that evolution. Yeah. So when you talk about this idea of unbiased, and actually, I think it's an admission that I have a biased perspective and you have a biased perspective and let's share them and see if we can get closer to reality. And it reminds me of what Einstein said when he was asked the question. It's one of my favorite quotes. He was asked the question, what if, what if they find out that your theory of relativity is wrong? He says, I'm not interested in if my theory of relativity is right or wrong. I'm just interested in the truth. Yeah. And the, the only way, and this kind of brings us back to this idea of diversity, right? The only way we can get closer to the truth is by everybody having a different perspective, sharing that perspective, and respecting that perspective. And that's what leadership really is. And leadership is a responsibility. So on your team, the leadership of every single person on the team is having the respect for everybody else's perspective and demonstrating that care, that respect, that concern for the thoughts, the ideas, and perspective of others. Without it, the team won't work. I'd go one step farther, which is when I look back the last nine months, and I feel very comfortable saying that the last nine months, both financially and culturally have gone better than I would have ever expected. I'm extremely pleased and, and proud of not only our team, but of kind of the work we've done together. But the other perspective that was so important in kind of the evolution of our culture and maybe the two smartest things we did. First thing was our, our biggest holiday of the year is Mother's Day. Everybody worked a customer service shift. Every single person, right? So now not only do you have the biases internally, they're either being verified or denied externally by people that are just, quote unquote, just customers, right? So they only have that perspective, which you would argue is one of the most important perspectives. That was smart thing number one. Smart thing number two, we did 10 hours of basically, I don't know, 
interrogations, if you will, of our florist partners. We had 50 of them. We had 50 of them in a virtual room for five two-hour sessions, and we just had them eviscerate our business. Tell us everything we were doing right, wrong, kind of right, completely wrong. And in that room, the people asking the questions was a combination of folks like me that had been in the flower industry for all of two months and folks like Tom that had been in the flower industry for 10 years. And there's a guy that wrote a book, one of the first books on landing page optimization, still a friend of mine this day, his name's Tim Ash. And Tim Ash had this thing when you were doing landing page optimization, his quote was, no one likes to be told their baby was ugly. And I'm here to tell you, Gary, for 10 hours, we got told our baby was really ugly, right? And everything wrong with our company. And so combine everything we just said, you have the historical perspective of folks that are still on the team. You have the new perspective of folks that are new to the team and all come with their own biases. And now all of these things are combined with what we're hearing from customers. And you know, as well as I do, usually people call customer service not to give you compliments, but to tell you what you screwed up. And then of your florist partners, which for us, for FTD, are the absolute lifeblood of what we do, right? They are the heart and soul of what we do. And so being able to combine all those things, I think made everybody a bit more willing to, to be vulnerable about what was going right and what was going wrong. And one of those things that I'm so happy we did, because selfishly, I did both just so I could learn the, the business. But what I ended up learning is, is where we really needed a focus to be great. And I think when you can complement your internal perspectives with both external perspectives of customers and, and in our case, partners, man, that was a pretty sweet formula to give us on the right path. Totally powerful. So I'm going to hold this little tomb up. Okay, this is 245 pages. This is my dissertation for my doctorate. That looks like it's like 2,400 pages. The reason I hold it up is because it's very large print, so it looks bigger than it is. But anyway, the reason I hold it up is I proved in this, one of the things that I proved, and to your point, in going out and having the conversations, is I proved that there's zero correlation between the perspective the perception of service quality by a customer or consumer. This is in business-to-business consumption, okay? Business-to-business relationships. These business-to-business relationships on average were seven years. They took an evaluation of service quality perspective on both sides. The correlation was zero. The only way to find out is to go talk to your customers, talk to your partners, and ask them the question. Because our perspective is so, as you said before, biased. It's so skewed that we can't get it out of our head. It's impossible. So to your point, it's like awesome what you did. And I'm sure it opened up a lot of people's eyes. And like you said, your baby's ugly. And yet, I'm just going to ask this question. Were there three to five things that just jumped out at you that you've started working on already because of what came out of these meetings? Oh, man, I'm going to tell you my number one. So, yes, there's like 40 things that, that happened, but I'll tell you my first. So the underlying investment thesis, if you will, that I had. So I'm not, now I'm not talking about us as a company. I'm talking about Charlie during an interview loop. My investment thesis that kind of I developed in my interview loop was that this business, the world of kind of gift delivery, had basically forgotten about customer experience. And in the year 2020, it's now 2021, but it was 2020 when I was interviewing. In the year 2020, that's pretty remarkable, right? Because how many business books and lectures and TED Talks have there been about customer experience in the last 10 years? It's like you can't turn the corner and not run into a Forbes article about it, right? So, I, and then, so that was my thesis, which was if we became like customer-centric, we would win, right? That was the underlying thesis. So my favorite moment in this interview loop was we have this concept that 
you have to sell certain flowers in a certain vase, right? So it comes as a, a unit, right? So you, the only way you can buy these 12 flowers if it comes in this blue vase, because that's what the customer's expecting. And so I asked florists, you know, how can we improve this program? And they all said in all matters of thoughtfulness and not so thoughtfulness, uh, this concept is just way too complicated and it's not how consumers want to shop. And so then we asked the question internally, okay, in 2019, like how bad was it? You know, hey, Rob, Rob's our chief digital officer. Like how many different vases did we make florist stock? The answer was 82. 82 wow. different vases stocked. And I was just like, so now you stop for a second and florists come in all shapes and sizes, but a lot of them don't have more than 1,500 square feet, right? How the hell are you going to stock 82 vases in 1,500 square feet? It's just silly. And so we come back to the, the florist group and we call them the florist advisory board. We're like, well, what if we made it so like one vase, you can do 12 different SKUs. And I swear to you, Gary, it was like we invented fire because it was just like people hadn't got out of their own way to think like that. It's the Pareto principle. I'm going to guess, I'm just going to take a wild guess here, that there were 10 vases that you would sell 80% of your product in. Well, yeah, but but also like how many times have you received a gift, you, in just like a crappy receptacle that you don't want to keep, right? Yeah. Like, and so it's just like, long story short, in 2021, that number will be nine. And we think we can get that down quite a bit. <laughs> And go back to it. It's a purely virtuous circle. It's purely virtuous because the florists are happy. We're happy because we have a more simple supply chain. The customers are happy because the vases are more versatile. And therefore, if they're more versatile for gift giving, maybe they're own person in your own home. Everyone's happy. And so we came out of the florist meetings in particular with like, you know, I come from a world of manufacturing and, and you've been in this world before too, where conversations are like, well, you know, if we could just cut two cents off the zipper, we'd make a lot more money. We're not having any conversations like that. Every conversation we're having, we're like, so who loses here? The answer is always no one, right? It's no one in the concept of simplifying our SKUs. We've also gone from over 120 different SKUs down to 50. Why? Everyone wins. And so it's just been really amazing. But that, that little vase story to me is like the archetype of the industry, where the industry had just layered complexity on top of complexity on top of complexity and everyone lost everyone the florist lost the consumer lost and they were probably losing themselves but that's what i dig about this job man is i'm just having so much fun because none of the decisions we make are compromises they're all truly virtuous circles between our florist partners and and the end consumers so what do you see in all the cultures that you've been through in in the startups and the things that you were doing where you created a culture is it really that different in what you're doing here by recreating a culture? No, but my biggest learning in this job that I think is a little bit different, it's more tactical than I would say strategic. I think the most important thing is to set remarkably clear expectations in both cases, right? Whether you're making one from scratch, I think expectations when you're making one from like an amino acid is super easy, right? Because there were no expectations before you, right? You're making them all up as you go. In this case, what I wish I would have done on like my first day at FTD is tell all the folks that were there in front of me, like, look, my number one expectation is we are extremely analytical and extremely honest with each other from now on. I do not care what happened in the past from now on, right? And I think that's somewhat unrealistic. Like even if I had said it, it takes people a while to get used to each other and understand that you're not full of it or whatever it may be. 
So I'd say that's the same in both cases, that expectations are so important and being very transparent about what you expect as a leader is so important. I just don't think it happens quite as naturally as within a startup. I think you have to be that much more intentional about it. But I, I think the end result, the end result answer to your question, Gary, is no, it's, it's the same thing. It's just how you get from point A to point B. Yeah. So the, the end point's the same. The process might be slightly different because you have a culture that's already there and there are certain aspects of that culture you want to respect. Scar tissue, right? Right. And you're not going to rip everything apart, right? So when you look at the basis of it, the organization needs to have a vision. They need to have a mission. They need to have values. The mission is, tells you what direction, how to make decisions. The values tell you how to behave. All right. And then the expectations come in terms of roles, goals, and daily expectations and how we're going to treat each other. And if you if you have that clarity of expectations, expectations as leaders is thrown around so much, Charlie. It's just thrown around as a word that is such a challenge for people to be clear with because it's not just about mission and values and vision. It's about goals and roles. It's about daily activities. You have to take it all the way down to the level of what are the priorities today? What are we going to get done today? And that's the challenge for leadership. Well, I'll give you another kind of quick story for me. Like, so the, I think the other thing you run into with expectations is all these like societal norms have happened. I'll tell you my least favorite, I'll tell you my least favorite societal norm is like, it's totally cool to show up at 802 for an 8am meeting. I don't know when it happened, right? But 80% of people, I'm making this number up, 80% of people would show up at 802 and 802 not give it a second thought. Like you'd be the jerk if you called it out. And so very early on, I was like, that's late. <laughs> don't, don't be late. Right. And so if you're like a, and if you want to be really anal retentive about it, like say you have a, a CMO, right. And, or a CDO or whatever, and they're making like $400,000 a year. They make a lot of money, right? Two minutes is a long time. Like you wasted a bunch of money. And if you add up that two minutes times six yeah. executives, times eight executives times 20 directors, that is a substantial amount of waste. And so very early on, I made it very clear <laughs> in no uncertain terms, but that was not the way we were going to function anymore. And anymore is the key word there because yeah. I'll tell you the societal norm was in the past reinforced by CEOs of the past. Mm-hmm. So that hard scar tissue got to break through. And, and I think picking those kind of minute battles set the tone of kind of what level of accountability. And there's a catch here. I got to hold myself to it. I was five minutes late to a call on Friday and my assistant did not let me let it down. Right. And that's kind of, <laughs> it, it cuts both ways. But the fact that she can tell you, or he, I don't know if you're assistant, a woman or, or man, but that he or she can tell you is part of the culture as well. It's holding each other, yeah. leadership and responsibility, holding each other accountable. You know, you screwed up. You're, you're right. The one answer is my fault. Like that's the only answer. That's the only answer. I had to go to the hospital with my infant in February. Like things are, don't, don't get me wrong. Like, but it's at the same time, it's, it's that kind of level of accountability. And what I say to people is if you're late once a month, you get a pass on it, right? That's the whole idea is that you basically built up that level of accountability and mutual respect. And so I think those things are how you build a culture is finding those kind of anecdotal examples to make like extremely important and really kind of put a pin in it. And, and I think you find that you come around pretty damn quick. Well, let's let's take a connection. I'm I'm an integrator. My brain works in small to big picture. So when you talk about being two minutes late at a meeting, you're trying to create a level of discipline within the organization, because if you take that all the way down the path of the service that you provide and the experience you're trying to create for customers, it needs to be just as precise and accurate as that two minutes. I love that. Uh, you're 100 percent right. I mean, and I think 
Same is true with like the values you mentioned about being mutually respectful and, and playing to your strengths and all those things. You bring it all the way down your supply chain, it's going to land on the customer. And, and I think that that's a great way of thinking about it. So to me, that's the responsibility of the leaders, not just leadership, but the leaders have to connect the mission, the values, the vision, the direction of the organization with the daily work, because a lot of people can't do that. They don't have that connection. So we as leaders have to make the connection for people, especially in a positive way, you know, to be able to say, you know what, I've noticed that for the last six months, you've been on time or early for every single freaking meeting. That's a demonstration of how we need to treat our customers, man, keep it up. And we connect the big picture to the little picture all the time. Well, and I think you, whether it was intentional or not, Gary, you, you just did something that I think is so important. And I will tell you an area that I've had to focus on myself, which is you focused on the positive versus focusing on the negative. I it's super easy to point out when someone's late, right? And I think it's not as normal that I that I kind of pat people on the back for being constantly on time. But I think that's important. It's an area that for me, I'm highly self-critical and it could lead me to be somewhat critical of other people. I had a moment, it was the Friday before Christmas. I had a moment where I was sitting in a meeting. It was basically like a war room meeting because Christmas is our third biggest time of the season. And I was sitting there and I am not an overly sentimental person. And I'm sitting there in this meeting and I got a little misty eyed and choked up because the team was kicking so much ass. Like I've been here for eight months and I watched this meeting and I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is just like another level of performance. And I kind of stopped and kind of called it out to everybody. I was like, this is pretty special to watch this. That's an area that I think as a leader, I, I need to remind myself to do more and more, right? You should celebrate the good as much as you do point out the bad. And I think we have a bad habit of, of maybe messing up that reciprocal sometimes. Yeah, it's it's a hard thing. And, and understand that the, the neuroscience of it is that our brain is conditioned to look for the negative. I mean, yeah. it's a survival mechanism, the amygdala, we can go all into that fight, flight or freeze stuff. And as executives, we need to overcome that. One of the, one of the ways that I did it, just to share an idea with you, Charlie, was in every organization that I was in a leadership position, I created these organizational three by five cards. Like I worked for this company called Alpha Numeric Systems and I called it the Alpha Award. And the Alpha Award was for positive contribution to the team. And I would just have that printed on the front. And on the back, I put Charlie, January 18th, 2021. This is what you did today that I found remarkable. And I want you to know how much I appreciate the extra work, the extra effort and the accomplishment. And sometimes it's just for effort. Sometimes it's for an accomplishment. Sometimes it's for a kind word, something. And when I've, I've done this, I can remember this one particular thing. I will never forget it where this woman was holding onto this card the day after I gave it to her. And she walked into my office with it. She's looking down at it almost in tears. And she says to me, I've been here for three years. This is the first time that anybody has told me that I've been doing a good job. And I think I do a great job, you know, and she said it, you know, like with this conviction of like, I do too. I think you do a great job. She said, first time I'm like, uh, I'd been there like two months and I'm like, this is sad that people aren't. You're going to be happy, Gary. My friend, Annie is a venture capitalist and she introduced me to this company called Assembly. Assembly lives in our MS teams and allows me to do micro recognition every day. And so everyone at the company has it. And it's been awesome. I'll even bring it up to a higher level. <laughs> An in, in interaction at FTD that sits with me to this day. This is maybe like my second week, like my second week. So call it early April. And 
I had given like a town hall presentation. I was like, by the way, one of the values that I have is like ruthless transparency. If you think we're doing something stupid, I'm doing something stupid, whatever. I would love it if you shoot me a Microsoft Teams or an email and talk about it. And I was really happy that like 20, 30 people shot me emails with ideas and, and kind of feedback and where we could get better and where we were maybe a little deficient. And one of them was this really thoughtful email because a guy at FTD named Charles Hill. And Charles wrote like an eight bullet email about this, 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 and this. It was, it was awesome. It was like exactly what I needed to read my second week. And I shot him a note back, gave him comments on each one. And I will never forget what he said to me in re- response to that, which was, I've been at FTD for seven years and I have never received a response from the C-suite before to an email. Wow. And that tells you two things, Gary. So let's do the positive and negative. Positive is we're on the right track, right? Just by engaging people and responding and having civil discourse, you're on the right track. The negative is how much scar tissue you're going to have to break down to get the culture you want, right? Yes. Because if that norm exists, then why would you ever write an email? If you know you're not going to get responded to, it's just human nature. You give up, right? You stop hitting your head against the wall. And so I think that this idea of constant recognition and constant communication is so important. And assembly is just one example. Text making this easier. I will say I like the three by five card, though, because it's a little bit more tangible. There, there's probably something there that's a bit of the middle ground. You know what happened is people started putting them up in their cubes. Yeah. And they were actually working in an office. But when they put it up on a cube and they were, there was a little bit of this, man, I got six of these. Yeah. How many you got? You know, and I mean, a little bit of competition, you know, friendly competition. But then when I knew I really had everybody was when they started giving it to each other. When I, they, they asked me to print extra ones and I, they started it. I didn't make it a requirement. I just role modeled it and just hoped and waited and, and said, oh, you know, so they did a, can I give them an alpha award? I'm like, hell yeah. And then <laughs> here's what I told people. I said, I want you to keep these at the end of the year or if we, every three months or every six months when we do a performance review, I want you to bring these with you so we can be reminded of the great things that you did. Because as your manager, as you know, I have to pick all the bad things you do and write them into your review. So yeah. let's balance that with all the good things, right? So I made it part of the performance review system. I love it. Yeah. Very powerful. I love your point, which I think all of us should remind ourselves of, which is focusing on the negative is not only really easy, it's in some ways human nature. And that's nice for me to hear because I just keep on trying to acknowledge the good as much as I can, just because I alluded to it. Nine months in, I think everybody should be so freaking proud of what we've done. And yet, when you have a really accountable culture, it's it's really easy to beat yourself up on the small things. I remember I was two minutes late for a meeting, you know, and I worked my ass off for nine months and I was two minutes late for a meeting. It's that emotional embarrassment that happens yeah. that the accountability needs to be there, but that's the embarrassment. They'll feel that. And that locks in those kinds of embarrassments lock in memory. So I want to finish up Charlie with my last question. I always ask everybody, if you could write yourself a letter and send it back to Charlie 10, 15 years ago, what would you tell Charlie? What would you tell that younger man that was coming up in the businesses that was coming into business out of college? And I think Washington are Huskies, right? I went to Connecticut. We're Huskies. Yeah. So what would you write yourself, Charlie? I I mean, you've prepared me for this question, Gary, and and I still feel like it's a hard one. So we talked about some of them. Number one, surround yourself with brains that aren't like yours. That'd be number one. Number two, find great mentors. 
And, and that is an area that I cannot emphasize enough. I just think it's so important. And honestly, it isn't that hard. If you're young and you start reaching out to people, you'll get some no's, but you'll get some yeses. Find great mentorship would be number two. Again, I got lucky. I stumbled into two great CEOs, which became my mentors. I did not proactively go do it. In hindsight, I wish I would have proactively gone and done it. Number three, there's nothing more important than being honest. And I think for me, during my early 20s in particular, you know, I had a lot of insecurities that I kind of patched up with just being a little bit liberal with the truth. You really can't do that, right? And I would attribute to all people, it's going to sound like I'm totally kissing ass here, Gary, but you just have to believe me. I attribute my wife the most to like teaching me what honesty can do to a relationship and the powerful of that. And then the final thing would be, I just think this is so important. We've talked a little bit around it, but just be relentlessly positive. And I don't mean to be like an idiot, like walk around smiling and laughing all the time and hide the truth, but there's two ways to approach problems, right? Your website goes down. You're like, oh God, it's all over. You know what I mean? Or, well, what can we do to fix this? You know, and so I think relentless positivity is is such an underrated and undersought trait. And it doesn't mean you have to be like goofy and smiley and if that's not your style, but just approach problems constructively. Don't approach problems with negativity. Approach them assuming they can be fixed. And if they can't, then move on to the next thing, right? And, and I just think that those four things are so important. But honestly, I think the most tangible one of those four that's so easy and doesn't take kind of like lifelong pursuit is go find great mentorship. And I just think that that's an area that I attribute to Rang and Jerome popping into my life as, as like the number one and two things that have happened in my leadership. And, and I think everybody could find books like that. Yeah, that's great. I can't agree more that finding coaches and mentors as we're growing up is huge. Well, Charlie, I really appreciate the time and the conversation today. It's been great talking a lot about leadership, about FTD and your new role there. It's really great that I'm hearing such great progress. Progress is what it's all about. The most motivational thing in our lives is progress. It's not goal achievement and accomplishment, it's progress. And you're making that. So congratulations on that. And we'll have to take a look more at the FTD and how you guys are doing. Yeah, I think we're just getting started, Gary. But yeah, definitely proud of the results so far. And thanks so much. This is a blast. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Thanks again for listening to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Take care, be well, and be great. Thanks for being with us on Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about the work Dr. Gary is doing, visit statarius.com. S-T-A-T-A-R-I-U-S dot com. Music for Leading from the Front is provided by Peter Katz. For more of his music, visit peterkatz.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>